Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Indoor football. It was a strange concept for the world of professional football in Chicago back in 1930. With the Bears fueled by the talented backfield of Red Grange and Bronco Nagurski, and the Chicago Cardinals boosted by the celebrated Ernie Nevers, there was plenty of star power on both sides of the city. Yet the 1930 season concluded with neither the Bears, 9-4-1, nor the Cardinals, 5-6-2, capturing the NFL title that was won for the second straight year by the Green Bay Packers. The two teams did meet for the final time during the regular season on Thanksgiving Day, with the Bears edging out their rivals 6-0. Before that contest, Cardinals owner Dr. David Jones challenged Bears owner George Hallis and the Bears to play the game for charity. While that suggestion failed to materialize, the two clubs later agreed to play an exhibition game on December 15th that would benefit charitable causes. Because of unsavory weather conditions being forecast, the leaders of the two organizations, Dr. Jones and George Hallis, further agreed that the game would be played indoors at the Chicago Stadium. While this idea in itself was exciting, it did pose a couple of major problems in the fact that the Chicago Blackhawks hockey team was in the middle of its season and the stadium was the Blackhawks' home ice, literally. The floor was covered in ice, which was certainly not the best surface for a football game. In addition, no one had the faintest idea on how to stage a pro football game indoors. It simply had not been done in Chicago in recent memory. But there was some precedence for such an event. Chris O'Brien's old Racine Cardinals had played several games indoors at the Dexter Park Pavilion, which would later be the location of the International Amphitheater near the stockyards in Chicago. The great Paddy Driscoll played his first game with the Cardinals on January 4, 1920, that's even before the start of the NFL, in a semifinal game of the Chicago Football League at Dexter Park. Even before that, the Cardinals butted heads with Driscoll on December 23, 1917, when the Cardinals played a scoreless tie with Driscoll's Evanston, Illinois team. The Munster, Indiana Times reported that Driscoll was a casualty in this indoor game when he struck his head against the wall early in the game and when the half was over could not recall a play he had made. Another drawback of the indoor competition was the low ceiling, which the Times blamed for a sad day by the kickers, reporting that the low ceiling interfered somewhat with the footwork and both teams missed all their kicking attempts. And that would include a 60-yard dropkick attempt by Driscoll on the last play of the game, which would have won it for his team. But let's go back even further to 1896, when the Chicago Coliseum began hosting indoor football games between colleges. Located at 63rd near Stony Island on Chicago's south side, 
The Coliseum was near the campus of the powerhouse University of Chicago football team. Chicago defeated Michigan 7-6 at the Coliseum on Thanksgiving Day in 1896. And then on December 19th, the facility welcomed an interesting pair of foes in the University of Wisconsin and the Carlisle Indian School from Pennsylvania. Wisconsin's season had long been over, but the Badgers were attracted by a promised nice payday, especially when over 10,000 people showed up to watch the game. While Carlisle won the contest 18-8, the indoor battle was not without its challenges. According to the Chicago Chronicle newspaper, a lofty punt found itself wedged into the rafters, the paper said. This extraordinary proceeding elicited prolonged shouting from the crowds. Well, apparently no one had bothered to bring another football to the game, and the Chronicle stated that a young lad was finally found who tripped along with the iron rafters and, securing the prize, tossed it down to the players waiting to renew the struggle. So, 34 years later, the pros tried their hand once again at the indoor game. The first problem to be solved was the solid ice over the concrete floor, especially since the Blackhawks were scheduled to play the night before the football game. It would take a lot of work in that short time span to make the game work. Immediately after the conclusion of the hockey game, the ice would be melted and the entire floor drained. Since the game could not be fought on the hard concrete floor of the stadium, truckloads of dirt would then be hauled in during the night to provide a depth of six inches over the 47,500 square feet of space. So that left us with just one more challenge, but it was a big one. There was no way that a regulation sized field of 100 yards could be fit into the football stadium which we should say is a hockey stadium. What could they do? In order to accommodate the cozy indoor surroundings, several rules were accepted. The field would be 80 yards long and kickoffs would be made from the goal line. To justify the shorter field, the offense would have 20 yards subtracted on each drive prior to crossing midfield. Then a white football would be used to increase visibility for both the players and the fans. At the same time, no drop or place kicks for field goals would be permitted. And finally, there would be no restrictions on punting since there would be a least 94 feet of open space above the playing surface. On the other hand, the punters knew that there would be no wind to affect their kicks. The charity selected to benefit from the contest was the Illinois Governor's Fund for Unemployment Relief, a noble cause during the economic depression. Yet one could reason that few dollars would be raised if attendance was low, which was a realistic expectation for a football game scheduled for December 15th in Chicago. Attendance had been severely limited a few weeks earlier by the frigid temperatures on Thanksgiving Day. But again, that was outdoors. Well, surprisingly, the response to the indoor game was strong. Approximately 10,000 fans jammed into the stadium and witnessed a solid game won by the Bears 9-7. There were some unusual circumstances due to the indoor field, however. With cardboard sidewalls surrounding the field, no yard markers were visible to the fans. The fans seated on the sidelines had obstructed viewpoints due to the sidewalls and the players often found the temporary field to be a bit slippery. 
But overall, it was a nice change of pace for all involved, a successful event for charity, and a challenge for some of the stadium regulars. For example, the Tribune noted that the path of Ernie Nevers' extra point kick attempt in the fourth quarter would follow a, a, a path that would intersect with the stadium's magnificent pipe organ. The paper said Nevers then kicked from placement directly at the world's greatest pipe organ, the bullseye for the seventh point, and it was good, although deflected by Ralph Waldo Emerson, the organist. Everyone had such a great time that there was talk of doing it again, although the most significant influence of this game would be two years later, when the Bears would play for the NF title in this very same location. Aside from deciding the 1932 NFL champion, the game would also inspire some much-needed rules changes that would finally separate the pro game from its collegiate counterpart. In 1932, the NFL had not yet adopted a playoff format. The championship crown was simply awarded to the team with the best winning percentage at the conclusion of the season. Tie games were ignored, and there were plenty of them. They were ignored in the standings, so when the Bears finished with a actually weird 6-1-6 mark and the Portsmouth Spartans 6-1-4, it was decided that the two clubs were tied and would meet for the title in Chicago on December 18th. The game would count in the regular season standings, so the loser of this match would fall to third place behind the dormant Packers, who finished 10-3-1. Then, two days before the game, which was scheduled for Wrigley Field in Chicago, the battle was switched to Chicago Stadium after gloomy and frigid weather reports were received. Both clubs also knew that the attendance would likely be limited due to the expected winter climate. With the memory of the well-attended indoor game with the Cardinals two years earlier, George Hallis had openly pre-planned for the possibility that the contest would need to be moved indoors. Once again, the game would be played on a shorter 80-yard field, although the Chicago Tribune claimed it was only 60 yards. But the dirt was already in place this time due to a just-completed visit by the circus. That was the good news. The bad news, unfortunately for the players, that there were a few souvenirs left over in the dirt from the elephants that had just been participating in the circus. In the end, over 11,000 fans witnessed the game, which was a solid crowd for mid-December in Chicago. In order to make the playing of the game more reasonable on the miniature field, a couple of key changes were implemented. Perhaps the most important was the decision to move the ball in 10 yards from any out-of-bounds line, which looks suspiciously like a four-foot wall for hockey. This allowed plays to be initiated with some breathing room on both sides of the ball. During the regular season, the ball was placed fairly close to the sidelines on an out-of-bounds play, but more on that later. Another innovation was the placement of the goalpost right on the goal line, although field goals, again, were not allowed in this indoor game. The Bears managed to capture the title with a tight 9-0 decision. After three scoreless periods, the only touchdown of the game occurred when the Bears' Bronco Nagurski faked a plunge into the line and then pulled up and tossed a two-yard scoring pass to a wide-open Red Grange. Portsmouth coach Patsy Clark wasted little time in expressing his displeasure after that play, since the rules at that time mandated that a pass could not be thrown unless the passer was five yards behind the line of scrimmage. According to the Chicago Tribune, which stated, 
The touchdown immediately was protested by Coach Patsy Clark of Portsmouth, who rushed to the field shouting that Nagurski was not five yards behind the line of scrimmage and that the forward pass, therefore, was illegal. Referee Bobby Kahn of New York ruled that Bronco had complied with the rules. And that was that. A couple of months later, the NFL implemented some significant rules changes that finally opened up the offenses and brought some differentiation between the pros and the college game. As George Hallis told us in his autobiography, and I quote, At the league meeting two months later, we made three fundamental rules changes. One, passing was permitted anywhere behind the line. Patsy Clark's attitude was common. Nagurski will pass from anywhere anyway, so why not make it legal? Second, an out-of-bounds ball was moved in 10 yards, eliminating the usual waste of a down to gain room to maneuver. And for me, this, of course, was the birth of hash marks. Back to Hallis, three. The goalposts, which had been moved 10 yards behind the goal line three years earlier, following the colleges, were restored to the goal line. These changes led to more scoring and fewer tie games, which had plagued the league since its inception. Two other imminent alterations that also eventually helped propel the popularity of pro football, when the league finally established two divisions the next year in 1933, with the winners of the two divisions meeting in a postseason championship game. And the physical size of the football itself was reduced in 1934, making it easier to pass. Today, indoor football games are common and take place in stadiums designed for the sport. We hope you have enjoyed our stroll back in football time when indoor games were both a novelty and a challenge. But those first two NFL indoor battles at Chicago Stadium will always be remembered as the pioneers of something that was once thought to be both improbable as well as impossible. Please join us next time for a special episode honoring the 100th anniversary of the founding of the National Football League. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. We at the Sports History Network are so glad to introduce to you a new addition to our lineup. Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast is a weekly podcast that focuses on the history and memorabilia of North American football since its inception in 1869. It's hosted by Bob Swick, the publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and Joe Squires, a longtime contributor to that magazine. The podcast was launched in 2017 and has over 150 episodes that you can listen to now on a Sports History Network, as well as your favorite podcast provider. So join Bob and Joe as they go through football history, talking about the memorabilia and the great legendary players and games of the American Gridiron on the Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast.